And so we turn our thoughts, our attention to what God has. We're going to read this together. The, the thing in bold, the part in bold, is what we'll read together. I'll read the first part. Abba, it's the light of your son Jesus that changes everything for us. We were a people living in darkness and have seen a great light. We were those living in the land of shadow of death on whom a light has dawned. Grace us now with ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to love and obey that we might repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Amen. Our daughter Naomi spent two and a half years studying at college in Valdez, Alaska. And Alaska is an incredible place. I mean, it, it really is a whole different experience. But during the winter up there, uh, it, it becomes even more difficult in some ways because of the lack of light. And those of you who have lived at northern latitudes or extreme southern latitudes know that this happens. It's called seasonal affective disorder, or SAD. And I don't know if there's ever been a more appropriate <laughs> acronym for something than that, because that's literally what it does, is you experience the effects of depression and moodiness and listlessness when the days are devoid of light. And even though we sent vitamin supplements and uh, bought a happy light um, that, that people sit in front of, the winters become long and people's moods become dark as well as the environment outside is dark. The truth is, we all need light. All of us. We need light to grow and to flourish. Light is something we need on a regular basis, not just a little bit of, but a lot of. This week's text invites us to dwell in the light. But what does, that, what does that mean? What does it mean for us as followers of Jesus to dwell in the light? Well, I think the text gives us ample opportunity to explore that question. If you were here last week, we actually met out in the light, out in the natural light at the outback there, and we listened to the birds, and we felt the wind, and we felt the light as we taught, and we started our study of John's homily. It's really not a letter in the technical sense. It's more of a homily, First John. And I was telling Pete um, this morning as, as we were praying, I said, you know, I go through a lot of my life thinking that I know the Bible. Like, if you ask, do you know what's in the Bible? I, th I would generally say, yeah, I think I know what's in there. And then I get deep into reading something like 1 John chapter 2, and I'm like, what? Where has this been? Like, it's just so rich and so full of truth that I feel like I'm, I'm reading it for the first time. And I think part of that is because of the way that it is structured. As a homily, it's meant to convey the essential truth to an audience um, in a specific manner. And I want to pray that it does it for us, but I also want to pray that it does it for you as graduates. As you take this next step, as you have this marker in your life, moving from one period, one period of time in your life to a new season with that. These are words to take with you. 
These are words to, to carry with you. These are, these are things that you need on your journey into this next step. So I want to pray specifically, in addition for all of us, for the graduates here, to be able to hold on to John's words this morning. And so we do pray this as we read these words, as we study your message to us, God, that you would fill our imagination, you would fill our hearts to know the truth and to dwell in the light as you have set it down in your word. Amen. So we have a lot of text. We're going to read it. We're going to break it up a little bit. We're going to make a few comments, and then we'll, we'll see where it leads us as we go. So we're reading 1 John chapter 2. I write this, dear children, to guide you out of sin. But if anyone does sin, we have a priest friend in the presence of the Father, Jesus Christ, righteous Jesus when he served as a sacrifice for our sins, he solved the sin problem for good. Not only ours, but the whole world's. Here's how we can be sure that we know God in the right way. Keep his commandments. If someone claims I know him well, but doesn't keep his commandments, he's obviously a liar. His life doesn't match his words. But the one who keeps God's word is the person in whom we see God's mature love. This is the only way to be sure we're in God. Now let's pause here for a moment, because in some ways we could take this as a test. And if you're like me, especially when I was a kid, I, I was not sure, was I in, was I out? Had I prayed the right prayer? Had I not prayed the right prayer? Had I done the right thing? Had I been baptized the right way? And I would come across verses like this, and I would be like, it's, is this a test that's being given to me? Have I made the cut? I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think John's intention is to say to people, hey, have you measured up? Instead, what he is doing is goading them to own what they know. It's a rhetorical device that he's using to, to get the people to engage and to admit who they are, to own who they are. They are the ones who Jesus died for. They are the ones who have been sacrificed for. They are the ones that keep the commandments. They are the ones that love. And by putting this test out there in a way, he wants them to recognize that, yes, they belong, as we will see. The other thing here that we need to say about sin as you travel into this next season in life is that you're going to encounter it. It's out there. It's everywhere with that. And the practice of sin, as we see here, does not allow the presence of love. It does not allow for the presence of God. It pushes us, it pushes that love out. And so to dwell in this place of love, sin is ever on the wane with that. John goes on. Anyone who claims to be intimate with God ought to live the same kind of life Jesus lived. My dear friends, I'm not writing anything new here. This is the oldest commandment in the book. You've known it from day one. It's always been implicit in the message you've heard. On the other hand, perhaps it is new, freshly minted, as it is in both Christ and you. The darkness is on its way out, and the true light already blazing. Anyone, let me repeat that. Anyone who claims to be intimate with God ought to live the same kind of life 
Jesus lived. I came across this recently from Eugene Peterson, and he said this. He said, the intent of Scripture is to put us on our knees before God in worship and to set the salvation-shaping words of God in motion in our lives. We are, always, we are always trying to use Scripture for our purposes. Scripture uses us. God's gracious pur- purpose is given us His words in written form, not to turn us into Bible students, but to provide a means by which we can hear Him speaking and be turned into Christians. Awed worshipers, sacrificing sufferers, devout followers. God has given us his word to turn us into Christians. God has given us this relationship, our intimacy with God, so that we would imitate Jesus. That is literally what it means to be a Christian, to be an imitator of Christ, a little Christ. The point of all of this is not more head knowledge. It's not some moral code. It's not some tribal affiliation. It is total transformation into the image of Jesus. That, as we are going to see, is where we are going with this. That is our end. That is the telos. John goes on, Anyone who claims to live in God's light and hates a brother or sister is still in the dark. It's the person who loves brother and sister who dwells in God's light and doesn't block the light from others. But whoever hates is still in the dark, stumbles around in the dark, doesn't know which end is up, blinded by the darkness. In last week's message, we we centered in on the necessity of community. We talked about how our character is formed in community, and I I like that quote a lot, but I kind of almost wish I'd, I'd gone a little bit further and say, look, your character is being formed by community. What community are you in? The question is not, is it going to be formed or is it not? The question is, what community are you going to let form it? You see, following Jesus is never a DIY project. The kingdom of God is not a DIY project. Church, your faith, real life, life abundant is not a do-it-yourself project. None of us are capable of doing this on our own. We are are baptized and born again into a relationship with God that is concurrently and inseparably also a relationship with the church, with God's people. That is the way the dynamic is designed to form us, is by being part of a community. And when hatred enters into that, when hatred brings the isolation, the individualism, the separation, it all breaks down. That's why the light always brings reconciliation. The the light always brings us movement towards others, not away from others with that. The other thing about this text that John so masterfully does is he puts the different generations and he sets them, as we're going to see just in a moment, he writes to each group. We all need to be reminded of this truth. John here uses the terms children, newcomers, and veterans. We all need each other. The veterans need to see the children and remember 
The children need to see the veterans and know them and to be loved unconditionally and without anxiety by those who have gone ahead and those who know. The newcomers need both. They need to see the, the, the freshness and the zealousness of the children and the wisdom and faithfulness of the veterans to navigate their way. We need people at different space in their walk. So often in our industrial imagination, we're trying to get everybody on the same page. We're trying to make everybody the same. We're trying to get, make everybody look alike, sound alike, talk alike. But listen, that's not the way it works. It's not, that's not the organic nature of the body. We have seasonality in the church. We have children. We have those who have recently just come to the faith. And then we have those that have walked this faith for decades. And we need all three and all three need each other. And I think that's why John writes this. He says, I remind you, my dear children, your sins are forgiven in Jesus' name. You veterans were on the ground floor and know the one who started all this. You newcomers have won a big victory over the evil one. And a second reminder, dear children, you know the Father from personal experience. You veterans know the one who started it all. And you newcomers, and you newcomers, such vitality and strength. God's word is so steady in you. Your fellowship with God enables you to gain a victory over the evil one. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out the love of the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. The world in all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on its way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. This is an incredibly important part of this message. C.S. Lewis wrote this in The Weight of Glory. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. That image has stuck with me ever since I first read it. The image of the child playing in the mud in the street in the slum and content because they have no imagination for what it would be like to have a vacation, a holiday by the seashore. We fool around, like he says, with drugs and sex and ambition and shopping and status. We are content to live with the superficial satisfaction of being sold to. We are content with the affirmation that comes from just participating in buying and selling. Because we have no imagination for something different, for anything more, for anything deeper. If John tells us anything in this, it is that we cannot be content with those things. And that the way that we break free from the spell of consumerism 
individualism, whatever other ism you want to put in there, is to fix in our minds, fix in our imaginations, the end towards which we are going, the end towards which we are called, the telos of our existence. You were made for more. You were made for more than just being a cog in the machine. You were made for more than just getting by and passing the next grade and getting the next promotion and doing the next thing. Grace Church, we were made for more. And we have to keep that end in mind. We have to keep that end in mind. Or we are just going to be content with the way things are until it is too late. The text is clear. God is calling us for and to a specific destination. And God will be there at the end. We are all living towards an end. The question is not if. The question is what end. So John goes on. He says, children, time is about up. You heard the Antichrist is coming. Well, they are all over the place. The Antichrist everywhere you look. That's how we know we are close to the end. They left us, but they were never really with us. If they had been, they would have stuck with us, loyal to the end. In leaving, they showed their true colors, showed they never did belong. But you belong. But you belong. The Holy One anointed you, and you all know it. I haven't been writing this to tell you something you don't know, but to confirm the truth that you do know. And to remind you that the truth doesn't breed lies. So who's lying here? It's the person who denies Jesus is the divine one. That's who. Graduates, you belong to us, and you belong to God, and we belong to you. Because just as you can be assured that you are on your way towards something, you can be assured that you are a part of something in this church. You are a part of this community, and we are a part of you in that. The thing is, there are a lot of things that are trying to deny that. There are a lot of things that are going to come against that. There are a lot of things that are going to assail that. Specifically, John uses the term here, Antichrist. He, he says this. He says, this is what makes an Antichrist, denying the Father, denying the Son, no one who denies the Son has any part with the Father, but affirming the Son is an embrace of the Father as well. Stay with what you heard from the beginning, the original message. Let it sink into your life. If what you heard from the beginning lives deeply in you, you will live deeply in both the Son and the Father. Now, Antichrist is a scary word for us, so hold on. We're going to get into Revelation this summer. We're going to deal a lot with this. We're going to go more in depth, but just for the time being, let's, let's kind of Let's kind of break this down just a little bit. You see, this term has been used and abused in much popular, if totally off-base, uh, fiction and movies. And maybe even worse is the way it has been abused by so-called preachers and so-called end-time experts, whatever that means. But John is clear here, there are antichrists. We've misunderstood them, yes, but it's true. They're here. So how do we avoid the cartoon images and boogeymen and deal with the real thing? 
because they are present. What is the true danger we're talking about here? Well, I think it goes back to the things John told us to avoid. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, as is put in a different translation. Who are the people, where are the voices that are trying to sell you something other than Jesus? They're the Antichrist. The Antichrist are the ones that are telling you, hey, Jesus is fine as one of many options. The Antichrist are the ones who are saying, hey, Jesus is fine as a means to your end, as your own personal idol that helps you get what you want out of life because it's all about you and your happiness and what you want to do. The Antichrist are, are the ones who are constantly saying, hey, the most important thing in your life is what you buy. The most important thing in your life is what you earn. The most important thing in your life is how you look. The most important things about your life are the things here and now. Those are the voices of the Antichrist. John is adamant in his admonition to shun those voices. Church may be the only place in our day and age, in our society, in our culture, where those voices are called out for what they are. They are lies. And that is why we come together on a regular basis. That is why we practice this. It's because, y'all, this is what, 25, 30 minutes that I get to talk? You're going to be in your community group and talk about it. You may do a little extra study, but most of your time, most of your attention is going to be fought for by the voices that are denying who you are, who God is, and where all this is going. We have to practice to dwell here. Well, let's see what John says. He says, this is, what, this is exactly what Christ promised, eternal life, real life. I've written to warn you about those who are trying to deceive you. But they're no match. And here's your hope. Here's your hope that we hold on to. They're no match for what is embedded deeply within you. Christ anointing, no less. You don't need any of their so-called teachings. Christ anointing teaches you the truth on everything you need to know about yourselves and Him uncontaminated by a single lie. Live deeply in what you were taught. And now, children, stay with Christ. Live deeply in Christ. Then we'll be ready for him when he appears, ready to receive him with open arms, with no cause for red-faced guilt or lame excuses when he arrives. Once you're convinced that he is right and righteous, you'll recognize that all who practice righteousness are God's true children. Even though I've been addressing the graduates here, this is for all of us no matter where we are. This is for the children. This is for the newcomers. This is for the veterans. This is our practice. This is what we are called to, is to dwell in the truth that has been given to us through the anointing of Jesus Christ. That message which has been planted in us by the Holy Spirit 
it's not an easy task. There's no quick fix. There's no shortcut. There's no magic spell that just poof makes this happen. This comes by practice. This comes by dwelling. This comes by intentionality. This comes by sacrifice. This comes through community. Uh, one of my favorite magazines is Dwell. I think I've probably stolen a bunch from the Bogarts house, um, maybe. But Dwell magazine is this architectural magazine. And uh, not that I'll ever be able to afford anything that's in that magazine, but it's nice to look at every once in a while and kind of use, use it to form my imagination as, well, what can I do with what I have already now that I've seen a different way? And I think that's, that's one of the ways that the Word informs us, is it gives us this picture. It gives us this picture that ultimately will come, but it's not quite yet. We talk about the kingdom of God, right? The ancient future kingdom coming, the kingdom that is here, the kingdom that has come, but the kingdom that will come. And I look at that magazine and I see the immaculate layout and all the bright and shiny things, but then I come back to my own life and I go, what now can I apply with that? What can I do with it? This word in 1 John, specifically this chapter, helps us look at our life. It helps us examine where we are in light of what John is calling us to and say, where do I need to dwell more? What practices are keeping me from dwelling and what practices do I need to inhabit to draw me closer to that? Living deeply or dwelling may be one of the single most difficult things to do in our superficial age of instant gratification. We Google for answers and swipe to make choices. So what does it mean to live deeply, to dwell here and now? Well, this is the point in the sermon where I'm supposed to tell you, right? My answer is, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know what it is for you. I can't give you that answer. If I could, I would have denied everything that I've just said about it no, being no quick fix, no shortcut, no, no just Google the answer and do it. I can't give you that answer. What I can do is this. I can point you towards the way. And I can invite you into the community that practices it. And I can walk alongside you with it. You see, John tells us about it here. He spells it out, as does all of Scripture. Maybe more importantly is Jesus shows us. Jesus shows us what it means to dwell in the light. Jesus shows us what it looks like to live deeply. That's why we're called to imitate Jesus. Because he's doing it. He did it, and he is doing it. And then the invitation is to be part of this church, part of this community. Because that's what we're trying to do is practice that. We mess it up. We mess it up every day. But we're trying, our intention is to practice that dwelling in the light. And then I can also affirm, you belong. 
you belong. You have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. You have Christ in you. And with those things, the word and the example, the spirit and the community, I cannot but trust that we will find that way, even if right now we are still finding it. I'm going to invite the worship team up now. But I also want to take time to pray for our graduates specifically. Um, John and Norma, if y'all will come on up to serve communion, I want to serve these graduates first in this. I talked earlier. Josie, hold on. Stay down here just for a sec. You're going to go up there in just a sec. Um, so I told the community as we were praying for this service earlier, uh, one of the reasons why communion is so powerful is because it's something we receive. It's something that's given to us. It's not something we earn. It's not something we make on our own. It's something that we come and we partake, we receive from somebody else. And so, Kelly, come on up. If you guys come on up. Teresa, some of the others, come on up. Pete, Martha, y'all come on up. Um, we want to just take some time and pray for this group, but also all of us, all of us to know we are part of them and they are part of us. Jesus, thank you for these people, for these precious lives, for who they are to us and in us for how they help us look more like you, Jesus, conformed into your image. And we pray that the words of these, this specific passage of 1 John 2 would be set in their hearts, would be solid and, and be good seed for much fruit in their lives. And Jesus, we also commit to receive from them with what they have for us as they venture into this next stage in their life with that. Thank you for these children. Thank you for these new believers. And thank you for these veterans that all of us may learn together for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As we take the cup and we take the bread this morning, we remember that this is what God has done for us. Provided the sacrifice, solved the problem, made the way. All who are seeking Jesus are welcome at this table. At this time, we'll also take up an offering. And this is a time to reflect and to pray. And as we worship, then we'll end with benediction. Thank you for being here this morning.